Welcome to the Crushing Cash Flow Podcast, where we share phenomenal advice and dozens of decades of wisdom from investors and entrepreneurs of all types and all stages of their journeys. We'll cover many forms of cash flowing assets, such as real estate, stock investing, entrepreneurship, and general finance guidance. Listen in and learn from those who are crushing it out there, as well as those who have been crushed by business or their investments. Now here's your host, Andrew Shutsky. Welcome to Crushing Cashflow. I'm your host, Andrew Shutsky, and with me today is Zach Robbins. Zach is an attorney specializing in securities work based out of Minnetonka, Minnesota. Zach, did I get that that city name right? Yeah. Minnetonka is a suburb of Minneapolis. Awesome. Awesome. That's what I kind of figured, but having never been there, I figured I'd butcher that one way or another. Thanks for joining. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So, so let's go into your background. How did you, how does one, how does your life bring you to being a securities attorney? Did you wake up one day and decide, ah, I want to, I want to work with the SEC? <laughs> you know, I um, have been around the capital raising space for nearly 15 years. And, and in fact, when I graduated college, I um, started up a business with one of my siblings and we had to raise capital. And so I've, I've just always sort of been around and been comfortable around the area of raising capital. Uh, and in law school, I uh, started to work with an investment bank and then joined them full time after law school, doing a sort of a quasi in-house compliance role, legal role, along with um, financial sales on sort of the M&A and private placement side. And, um, and so that, that's how I sort of cut my teeth in the, in the securities world, uh, understanding sort of the overall framework, how it was all structured, basically stemming from the 1933 and 34 acts. Um, and so that's sort of led me here today. I've, I've, I've had a handful of different um, steps along the way, but always somehow some way been involved in the security space. Interesting. So it's not a story here, uh, probably really told too often at all. So it's really interesting. So let's start with the process of how does one properly go about syndicating a deal? How does one go about the structure at a you know, 5,000 foot level? Yeah. So um, even taking a step further back, you know, there's, there's often sort of discussions that I've been around in the real estate world and, and, you know, more than half of my work is real estate securities law. And there's sort of this misnomer that many folks in the real estate world think they're not selling a security. And it is true. There are some interests that, that are not securities, um, but that's very, very few and far between. For the most part, if you are creating an LLC and you're selling interests in that LLC, you use the capital to buy a property or develop a property, whether you know it or not, you're selling a security. Um, and so because of that, one needs to obey our securities laws. And so that's just sort of the first place that I think we need to start off at is folks just recognizing the fact that if you're raising capital for a real estate deal, it is very likely that you are selling a security. And it doesn't matter friends and family, it doesn't matter who it is, you, you got to get by by these this framework, right? Yeah. So um, again, there are some misnomers about 
about friends and family rounds. And, you know, you don't see the word friends and family in any of the uh, securities laws themselves. Shocking. Um, (laughs) You know, there's the law and then there's sort of the practical side of things. And, And while it is true that that sort of friends and family, um, there there is sort of a carve out for it, which is an, in the in the securities laws we deem that to be people that you have a substantial pre existing relationship with, mm. and if you have that relationship with someone, then you can take advantage of certain exemptions under the law. And so um, there's Regulation D, there's Rule 504 and Rule 506B, both of those. Um, you can sell under those exemptions so long as you're selling to someone that you have a substantial pre-existing relationship with. And are there boundaries behind the substantial relationship? Is it a time period? Is it a certain amount of data or is it a little bit vague? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, as you tend to find with these laws, they, they say something and then it's not like they provide an example. Right. And so we are often left to sort of figure it out on our own. There are things known as SEC no action letters. And through SEC no action letters, we've been able to get a better handle on how one can create that substantial pre-existing relationship. And so the, the, the sort of landmark no action letter that came out on this topic was around 2015 or so. And it basically said, look, if you don't have a substantial pre-existing relationship with someone you can create it and you can create it in under what's called a cooling off period, mm-hmm. which in this case, in this specific letter, the SEC deemed to be a 30 day cooling off period where the issuer of the deal, the deal sponsors got to know the investors in that 30 day period um, and you know, determined that the investors had the sophistication to invest, determined that they understood the risks involved. Um, you know, had conversations with them and sort of created that relationship in a shorter period of time. And so that's that's sort of the closest guidance we've gotten to, hey, what happens if I don't have that relationship with someone? I will just choose an example on the other end of the spectrum, which is, you know, if I'm raising money to buy a, a, a duplex down the street and, you know, um, Andrew, you you and I know each other, so you want to invest and, but then a week later you say, Hey, my dentist wants to invest. Mm-hmm. I don't know your dentist. We've never had any interactions. You know, people do bring those folks into deals, but in doing so you're, you're not complying with any of these laws that I just spoke of, which are rule 504 and rule 506B, unless you create that relationship under that 30 day coin off period, or you use what's known as Rule 506C, which I'm a huge advocate for. And Rule 506C basically says we don't care if the issuer of the de- of the deal, the, the deal sponsor, has any relationship with investors beforehand. They are allowed to solicit to anyone. Um, under Rule 506C, though, investors do need to be accredited. And so, and then those investors need to be verified by a third party that they are accredited. But under this new law, which came about in um, October 2013, we finally sort of started to, uh, you know, carve away from the uh, substantial pre-existing relationship requirement, which, 
you know, let's 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 face it. In the in the twenty first century, it just doesn't make a ton of sense. When when you're raising capital for an idea or a company, mm-hmm. you should be able to do so across all fifty states, and don't necessarily need to know someone. Um, you know that knowing someone, unfortunately, sort of perpetuates that old boys network. You know, which which keeps the you know rich getting richer and keeps people on the outside from getting in. And so. Mm-hmm. Long story short, laws like Rule 506C and like uh, Reg CF, um, which is short for regulation crowdfunding, both of those are excellent new laws that have been created over the past decade to allow for people to finally raise money from people outside of their own network. Excellent. So quick recap, just, you know, layman's turns. Yeah. 506B, wider pool of people potentially don't have to be accredited, but you have to know them. I think you said 30-day cooling off period. Um, is that from the time of first contact to the time you offer them the security? Um, that is from the time that that you um, that that you reach out and first make contact with the investor from the date of closing on that investor's funds. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you have a okay, gotcha. Yeah, okay. yeah. And so that's 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 Rule 506B again intended for people that you have that pre-existing relationship with, or or for those that you create that relationship with in that cooling off period. Um, you know, the law states that you can raise money from 35 non-accredited investors, but the only companies that are allowed to do so are those that uh, ha- have audited financial statements and are f- and are producing a, a private placement memorandum that is basically akin to a, to a PPM that you file with the SEC if, if a company's going public. And so, you know, that's another sort of misnomer that, that people think that they can raise money from 35 non-accredited investors, but they're, they are very likely not meeting the disclosure requirements under the Securities Act. Now, Rule 504, which I also mentioned, does allow for non-accredited investors. And so when, when I'm doing a, a, a deal, um, and the amount of capital that, that needs to be raised is $5 million or less, and they would like to have non-accredited investors, then we tend to go down the Rule 504 pathway. Hmm. Interesting. You, you hear that one lesser discussed. A lot of the books you read, and you know, again, it's the internet, right? So it has to be true. You see 506B and C as being the main yeah. frameworks, but 504 is lesser discussed for sure. Yeah, and so there's some reasons why, namely, mm-hmm. You know, much of this is just habit. And Rule 504 had a million dollar cap up until I think three years ago, maybe two and a half. I think it was late 18. And so million dollars was really difficult for especially folks in the real estate world uh, to only raise that amount of capital. So since that time, it's thankfully been raised to three to sorry to five million dollars. And so okay. it's an excellent change. Um, again, though, out of habit, I think people don't even consider Rule 504 because it wasn't used for so long because of that million-dollar cap. The other reason why, and this is really sort of wonky in the weeds, is that uh, Rule 504 is just a little bit more cumbersome on a state filing perspective. This is called the blue sky laws when you need to, uh, let's say that I raise money across 10 different states. I need to um, likely make filings in those 10 states or find an exemption in each of those 10 states to be able to raise the capital. Mm. And um, 
And Rule 504 doesn't, uh, it's just, uh, it's more challenging to work with. Let's just say that. Okay. So there's no, there's no free lunch in any scenario, really, right? No, I mean, yeah. you actually just said it perfectly because uh, uh, very often when I work with new clients, it's it's this sort of push and pull where it's like, okay, which exemption should we go with? And the first thing I say yeah. is, is, look, you know, er- every deal is different. Just because we do Rule 504 on this deal or 506B on that deal or 506C or Reg CF or Reg A, um, every deal is different and it really depends on the facts of that situation. And, and to your point, there is no silver bullet. There is no one size fits all. It just depends on the amount of capital that needs to be raised, the you know how wide the network is of investors that the sponsors can go after, um, mm-hmm. you know the number of accredited versus non-accredited investors, uh, you know the speed, whether or not they're able to solicit or wanna solicit online. Um, these are just some of the variables that we need to take into consideration before we make the important decision of how we're going to raise that money. So they're all great tips. I mean, I guess the first thing that comes to mind, if you're, if you're a new, I'd say investor, a syndicator, and you're saying, I want to start a company, what, when's the right point to engage an attorney? Cause this is not stuff you want to take on, on your own. So is it when you first find a deal before you find a deal, ideally, what's the right timing? I mean, selfishly, I want to get involved as early as possible. And and that sounds self-serving, but there's some truth to it because the sooner that an attorney can get involved, the more just helpful commentary they can make. I mean, you know, folks approach me all the time after they've, you know, ex- executed an LOI. And it's, it's not as if that's too late, but if I can get involved at the LOI stage, I can be more helpful in terms of crafting the deal terms at, you know, 50,000 feet. Um, so sooner the better. Um, what I, what I sort of cringe at is when a client, you know, reaches out to me after they've signed the PA. Mm -hmm. And by that point, the clock is ticking because they have 30, 60, 90 days to close. And we're under the gun at that point. So the sooner you can reach out to an attorney who understands, real estate and securities laws, the better, the, the, the better plan you can put in place and you're not going to feel as rushed and stressed to raise the money. Now, were you, I mean, you operate out of Minneapolis, but you may be operating in other States as well. If someone's looking, let's say like me in Florida and you're working with a local real estate attorney who knows the laws ins and outs of that state, you know, do you work with that local real estate attorney as well? Or do you typically handle it all yourself? How does that work? How's the division of labor? Yeah, we often work with local counsel on these deals, especially for the real estate aspects of it, you know, sort of the the, the dirt aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I have the benefit of working at a larger firm where, where, you know, we have attorneys licensed all throughout the country. And so, um, you know, we we can operate in multiple states. So it, it's um, but but to the to the extent you, you can work with a practitioner locally it, it's always for the better. Absolutely. Absolutely. What are the common pitfalls you see people fall into, right? Is it, is it timing? Is it the wrong structure? Is it not advising counsel? What do you, what do you see? What are some, maybe tell a horror story or two <laughs> that always could, you know, smack people in the right direction. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, one easy thing just to pick out is environmental can be a, can be a hazardous issue, uh, pun intended, 
you know, where that can really just, that can really um, be just a huge pitfall in a, in a deal. It could sometimes even be a showstopper. So the sooner you can get a handle on that, the better. Um, So I would say that first and foremost, you know, secondly, um, is this the whole banking aspect of it? I feel like people uh, don't always appreciate how important the bank is and how important the bank drives the deal terms and the success. And so the sooner that the deal sponsor can get their ducks in a row with respect to the banking side of things, the better. And so, you know, when I have that first conversation with, with the deal sponsor, one of the first questions I ask is, okay, where are we at with the banks? And very often the answer is, oh, we still need to talk to them. And I say, well, let's, the moment you hang up, let's start calling up the banks because I like to work backwards on all of this. And so this, so I like to work backwards from knowing how much the bank can put forth. So, you know, if, 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 if the purchase price is two mil and we can get, you know, bank loan for 1.5, uh, hypothetically. Mm-hmm. And so then we have 500 K that we need to raise. Well, of that 500 K, how much are the deal sponsors putting in? How much money can we get from, you know, what I'll, pardon me, what I'll call sort of alternative sources like TIF, economic development grants, uh, PACE loans, you know, there's so many other unique ways to try to raise capital. And so the more, so we just sort of go down that list and check them off. And you find that the amount of capital that you need to raise keeps shrinking and shrinking, which is great. And, you know, we, we don't always know if we can, if, 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 if we can achieve and raise capital with all those, what I'll call patchwork funding sources. So that's why we have a minimum and a maximum for each rate. So, you know, under the example that I gave, let's say that through all these various sources, we've determined that at the, at the bare minimum, we're going to need 250 K from outside investors. But if things don't pan out, we may need up to 500. So then we have a minimum and a maximum offering amount for the deal and that's what I always like to see. Oh, that's great. Well, you just back to the environmental thing. Are you are yeah. you referring to the environmental testing results you would get that are kind of enforced by a lender anyway? Just get that stuff early on. Is it your recommendation? Yeah, get that stuff early on. And and you know, uh, frankly, it's not my area of expertise. I, I have colleagues who focus quite heavily in those areas, so I can't you know speak with incredible depth about some of the horror stories, but. Again, just getting a handle earlier on, uh, talking to the sellers, just making sure that if there's any skeletons in the closet that you just get them out and everyone's on the same page because no one wants to have a deal sort of, uh, you know, railroaded at the 11th hour that can just blow things up. Yeah, especially you know, thinking about the structure of like being a sponsor myself and all everything you're paying up front, right? You don't want to get to the point where I spent $10,000 plus in the PPM and all, all that paperwork and then find out the last minute, oh, I can't get funding or I failed environmental. So yeah, you got to be thoughtful about how you throw your money out there and what sequence. That's exactly right. I mean, I'm on a pretty substantial deal right now with over a dozen properties and you you just said it. I mean, with a deal of that size, the deal sponsor has so much at stake from legal and again, not just my legal work, you know, real estate legal, securities legal, um, you know, title, um, earnest money, uh, you know, time invested, um, 
there's the, there's a lot at stake. And so the last thing that we want to see is that deal blow up because there's some unintended um, issue. Sure, sure. So back to, you know, if someone decides, hey, I've got to go 506B, you know, I don't have quite as wide of a network as I'd like. I'm going to stick to maybe more friends and family. You know, I know we can't market the deal, you know, explicitly. You know, how do you build your brand if you're going to operate within a 506B parameter? Yeah, really good question because that's sort of the yin and the yang of this. And that's why I'm such a huge fan of 506C because we don't need to sort of artificially constrain ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know that that wasn't your question. Your question was more of 506B, but I'm, I'm just using it as, as a comparison because with 506C, sure. um, I don't need to mute myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I can go out and publish um, something on LinkedIn, uh, you know, Twitter, Facebook, whatever your preferred method of reaching people is, I can take advantage of that. With 506B, on the other hand, you really can't. I mean, you know, I can reach out to people individually. The SEC, as you may expect, frowns upon, you know, a mass email blast um, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons if, if it's a private placement. So, you know, word of mouth, um, phone calls, you know, direct emails with people. Uh, some folks who I've gotten to know have done sort of what you're doing. They've launch podcasts. They've created their own website. They have just tried to build sort of a stable of folks who they've gotten to know over the years and who they can go to when they have a, a, a deal. The, the issue with that is it takes time. And like anything else, it doesn't happen overnight. So one has to be patient and sort of have that long vision of, you know, hey, in 12 months, I want to have 100 people in my stable of prospective investors that I can go to. Um, but for those that are antsy and trying to close on a deal next yeah. month, it's, it's just not that simple. Yeah. I mean, there's, that's the reality, right? So you got to kind of pick your poison and run with it. So that's all really great. A lot of awesome content in here. We covered a lot about the structures in the beginning, some of the common pitfalls, how to market, what can you, what you can and can't do. Um, but again, I, you know, I can't say it enough from my own perspective, you know, this is a great overview, but you got to engage as a professional like Zach. If you're taking this seriously, you're taking on a deal, even if you're investing in a deal to kind of figure out what's what. Yeah. I mean, and I would just add that for, for sort of the rookie, this is all very confusing. It's like anything, you know, we're throwing 504, 506, B, sure. C, et cetera, Reg CF. I even mentioned Reg A earlier. This is all very confusing. When it's your second deal, it's incrementally less confusing. Mm-hmm. Third, fourth, fifth deal, you know, you start becoming sort of a quasi expert on this stuff as the deal sponsor. And so like anything, it becomes easier the more that you do it. Um, but, you know, I, I can't stress enough how, how if one can take the time and start to understand this stuff, it becomes like a superpower, right? And you see it with folks like Grant Cardone, for instance, who, you know, I, I love some of the stuff he does. I hate some of the stuff he does. But regardless of how I feel about his work, he's a master of um, gaining attention and getting more prospective investors on board. And, um, and, and because of that, uh, once you understand the framework of laws, someone like him can take advantage of Reg A. And with, with Regulation A, 
all of a sudden you can raise up to $75 million. Wow. You can raise money from accredited and non-accredited investors and the securities are immediately tradable. And so there's, there's just, you know, like going down the list, you just check every box with something like that. And reg A just isn't an option for, for 99.9% of deal sponsors. But I just bring it up to, sh- to say that the more one does this, the, the larger network of prospective investors they can bring on board, uh, the more comfortable they get with securities laws, a lot of these sort of hurdles just fall by the wayside and it becomes easier and easier. Very well said. Very well said. Okay. We're pretty much up on time. So thanks okay. Zach for your, for everything. Last question from my end, how can listeners get in contact with you? Sure. Um, LinkedIn, you can find me, uh, Zach Robbins, um, or LinkedIn slash I N slash ZJ Robbins, Twitter. I'm ZJ Robbins, uh, pretty much on any social network. I'm ZJ Robbins. So that's, that's the, uh, there's one B in Robbins. That's the easiest way for people to find me. Perfect. You're pretty well covered on the social media side of things. Sounds like. I, you know, I try, it's, it's, it's like anything, you know, you need to force yourself to do it. And, um, but the more that one is active, um, I think the more benefits they see out of it. Absolutely. And it's work. No doubt about it. Yeah, no doubt. (laughs) Thanks Zach. Really appreciate it. This was fun. Take care. Thanks for listening in with us for another episode of the crushing cash flow podcast. We have a small favor to ask of all of our listeners. Please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Each subscription and rating will help us massively toward our goal of helping reach as many listeners as possible each week. Thank you very much once again for listening. We're thrilled to have you with us as part of this journey, and we can't wait to share more of these stories with you. Stay tuned for much more to come.